I'm an optimistic long run. I was a great man I once said that the true symbol of the United States is not the bald eagle, it is the pendulum. And when the pendulum swings too far in one direction, it will go back. Welcome to How We Win. All over the country, people are doing extraordinary things. The best antidote to anxiety is action. There are now 40 days until the most important election of our lives. And with your help, we're going to win all the houses. Joining us today for our interview, we have epidemiologist, former candidate for Michigan governor, and current host of Crooked Media's America Dissected Coronavirus podcast, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. We'll talk about his new book, Healing Politics, and how policies based in empathy are the right prescription for our country. But first, before we do that, to help us break down the week, we are so pleased to be joined by the host of The Dworkin Report and co-founder and executive director of the Democratic Coalition, Scott Dworkin. We'll talk about the tragic passing of another American icon, the notorious Ruth Bader Ginsburg what the abhorrent GOP response has done to fuel Democratic Senate campaigns all over the country. I'm Steve Pearson, and this is How We Win. Uh, Scott Dworkin, thank you so much for joining us and helping out today. It's been a pleasure to join you today, and a pleasure to partner with Swing Left here coming up to the election uh, y'all are doing important work. We're excited. Yeah, uh, your organization, Democratic Coalition, uh, just joined the last weekend's coalition to help drive volunteers into action. So, That's right. So thank you. T- uh, before we get started, go ahead and tell us a little bit about Democratic Coalition. So we started as a, um, I've been a political organizer and fundraiser since 2005. And uh or 2003, I'm getting too old to remember. Uh, and and basically, I went to a spring football game, or it may have been earlier, but there was a get-together in North Carolina, and I saw a lot of people waving around Trump flags, and this is early 2016. Hmm. Uh, my, my thought was that he could win. And so one of the things we wanted to do was start an organization that pushed back against all the nonsense and all the crazy stuff he was doing. Um, so we, we did just that, and uh, it's now spun into a wonderful, gigantic, enormous kind of uh, behemoth of online organizing mixed with in-person action. Um, we used to, in 2016, near the end of it, we used to investigate Trump and his allies, and those uh, investigations have then led to you know, different things. There, there's evidence that's been used in Mueller's. There's, there's right. a bunch of different uh, research that we've done. So it's basically online organizing, and we'll go back into our investigations coming soon. But uh, proud to work with those folks and uh, our, our hundreds of thousands of members. And, uh, you know, the Democratic Coalition has been around four and a half years, and we're not going to be going away after the election cycle. But uh, we're working hard here on the Senate races especially and uh, look forward to working with you all. Yes, we're we're looking forward to that too. We're looking forward to 
getting some of your people to make phone calls right now, which is right. which is at the top of our list of what everyone needs to be doing. It's uh, un. Unfortunately, because of the pandemic, it's the only safe way we have to have these really impactful and important one-on-one conversations. So, um, absolutely. So we'll get some absolutely. of your peeps doing it. Um. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. We, I mean, we got to get them to do, you know, something. Uh, there's a lot of people who wanted to knock doors, obviously, right. and they've done that for years. And uh, perennial folk, people who have been every election cycle, they always knock doors. Uh, and so it's funny because I've had a lot of volunteers that have been making phone calls say, you know, people are actually picking up. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of things, you know, people want to talk to people, people want to interface with people and they actually treat them like a human. So it's a, a little nice for them. But yeah, they're, they're going to look forward to making calls and I look forward to making calls as well. It's a really good point because we don't have the data on uh, what phone banking in an election year during a global pandemic uh, looks like. <laughs> right. <laughs> we haven't done those studies yet. Um, right. But anecdotally, we are having you know higher contact rates, better conversations. And there was an interesting study that I saw this week that came out of Yale about um, the efficacy of phone banking versus uh, – Canvassing. Canvassing has always been widely considered to be more effective. Um, but this study was really showing that once you have contact, that phone banking, you reach fewer people. But when you have that one on one contact, the result is very similar. So um, it was a cool study talking about how effective these phone bank conversations are, too. Yeah, and it's uh, essential. I remember in 2004. We'll go back in time. The Carrie Edwards campaign, mm-hmm. and and uh, we would have these sheets of paper. There's whole, I mean, boxes, hundreds of boxes of them, and it would just have a little. We were so lucky because we had a little barcode on the right that we could scan with our little little scanner, and it would take forever. Like one person's <laughs> job was just scanning these things in, and uh, yeah, we used to do everything pen and paper. So it just. Uh, it's nice, it's nice to see things, you know, with a virtual interface. But yeah. That was back um, in the but, days of the, you know, the phone modems and stuff too, right? Right. right. And we're like, <laughs> I remember downloading Tetris on, on my phone modem and it took all night. I woke <laughs> up the next morning and still wasn't finished yet. <laughs> Just an aside. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. That's, that's like, yeah, I remember the AIM days. Um, right. <laughs> you know. It's way, way back when, but yeah, phone banking is essential. You're right, and and I hope everybody does join in, in the, to to the efforts because every phone call does matter. Um, and you know, it's not going to be j- just sitting there all day and not talking to people. You'll actually get to interface with people, and so I think it's uh, essential, and it's going to be the most crucial way in regards to investing your time. Phone banking is really going to be a, a key way to to do that. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the week a little bit because. It's been a, a tough one. Uh, we've lost yet another luminary in American history uh, with the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And it's set off this just horrific, craven, soulless power grab um, for the Supreme Court. What's your processing over the weekend and everything? What, what's your take on what's going on right now? You know, I, I, I really wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt. I thought that they'd let it breathe. But um, Trump's now announced that uh, on Saturday before RBG's actually even buried um, is when he's going to announce. Um, and they're looking at possibly one hearing. Um, hmm. You know, it's it's demeaning towards our democracy. It's, 
you know, spoiling everything that's been built the last few hundreds of years. Right. You know, one of the things that makes me sick is I see all these Republicans come out and they're like, oh, I respect RBG. Her legacy will be honored. And then they go right back around and they they basically go against her last dying wishes, right. first of all. And and it's really un- unfortunate. Um, I, I expect this because they kept him in office after learning, you know, about uh, trying to black, blackmail a foreign power using foreign aid money. Uh, but right. you know, it's it's. I think that uh, the good news is that people need decency and positivity right now. People are more receptive of of love, and I, I think that uh, there's going to be a lot of things that happen. Um, but but you know, with this, it, this is just a grotesque abuse of power that they're trying to take advantage of things while they're still in power. And I think this is desperate. Uh, it's a desperate attempt to pander for boats, and, and I think it's going to backfire in the end. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that I think it's going to turn out more Democrats than it would Republicans. Going to make more Republicans complacent uh, and be like, "Oh, well, he, he did that. We don't have to vote. Like, we're going to win this thing." Obviously, I could not agree with you more. Um, for I mean, it's it's always been flummoxing to me. It's probably not a strong enough word. Um, how Republicans put so much emphasis on the courts and how that motivates them in so many ways. And Democrats don't seem to do that. At least uh, our voters don't seem to do that. So I think this has really woken up a lot of people. And we'll get to some real tangible results of that in a second. But I don't think this changes a thing about Republicans because they were already voting for the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court was already on the ballot for them. Ruth Bader Ginsburg wasn't going to you know, fulfill another four years on the Supreme Court. Um, uh, when I saw Susan Collins and uh, Murkowski from Alaska come out and say that they would would not support a vote right now. I didn't put much credence in that as much as I wanted to because the GOP caucus in the Senate really gives them leeway when they know they have a tight vote. But Mitt Romney's uh, statement this morning was was demoralizing. I mean, that that was that that he is going to support a vote shows us where his values are. And um, I think he he's looking to the his future in a Republican Party, probably without Trump and still with the Heritage Foundation's backing and, and all of that. But um, it's rough. It's really it's really demoralizing. But I'll, I'll say this one thing, because uh you know, let's let's jump right into our reason for hope because I just went gloom and doom there, <laughs> which is so unlike me. It's not. It's been <laughs> stuff. But we'll brighten it up. <laughs> but let's brighten it up because you mentioned Democrats being engaged as a result of this, the fundraising and the volunteer engagement that has happened since Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing has been unbelievable. Act Blue who processes, you know, all of the progressive donations and for candidates and organizations over the weekend processed $100 million in grassroots donations. It's ridiculously awesome. Yeah. And I don't know where they are right now. It's got to be way more than that. Uh, Mobilize, uh, which is a platform that um, most all of our campaigns and organizations use to post events, phone baking shifts and all that. In the 72 hours since Justice Ginsburg's passing, they recorded 
300,000 new volunteer shifts. <laughs> so that gives that's my reason for hope in in what's been a really tough weekend and week. Um, mm-hmm. what's, what's given you hope over, over this tough, <laughs> tough time? It's, no, it feels like a weird catalyst, question to ask. No, no, no. The catalyst uh, of it's, it's interesting that RBG's passing has inspired so many people and also reminded people of the urgency of the election. Um, you know, obviously I guess you could say it's more urgent, but it's always been <laughs> this urgent. So I, I, when it comes to, Things that are positive on the on the horizon, I I, I see them outnumbered. Uh, mm-hmm. I see our people working. I see our people not talking but doing the work. I hear I, I see the candidates speaking genuinely and not fabricated. I see the followings of people exploding in regards to our people running for Senate in the House, mm-hmm. and uh, the the engagement that we've seen has the the RBG. Uh, passing as sad as it you know is has led us to the catalyst that that we we needed probably to potentially win the election and you know that's the i guess the bright spot in it all um and i hope you know i i know that she's probably looking down right and yeah just like in disgust with what they're doing but you know we are in control of our own destiny they're going to do what they're going to do. We're going to protest. We're going to try and stop them. We're going to try and get them to vote against it. We're going to do all that. But most likely, they're going to jam it through as quickly as possible. And I guess the key here is, is as long as we vote, if we all vote, like the numbers do not lie, we win. Right. So that's the key here. Um, it gives me hope that so many people are early voting. So many people are getting vote by mail. So many people are actually engaged in checking and talking to their family members. This is stuff we should have been doing for decades. Mm-hmm. But, you know, sometimes it takes things like this to provoke our action. So I think seeing people, how passionate they are, but uh, also how resilient they are to everything. With everything going on, people are still trudging forward. And uh, I couldn't be it's it's making me proud to be an American again. Sorry to get uh, too patriotic <laughs> with you, but yeah, I mean, so so I think we've got I love just that. a great great journey ahead of us. And and if we look back, if we look back from the mountain that we're on right now, look back down, see how far we came. I remember when I was almost thrown off a of TV because I used the word traitor. Hmm. I called Trump a traitor, and this is 2016. And you know how long we've came. I remember when I used to say, let's impeach him back then, even before he actually was sworn in. Right. And people are like, that's never going to happen. I'm like, you know, we need to investigate Russia. That's never going to happen with the House and Senate and White House under Republican control. Right. And even though the outcome, his presentation and all the rest that happened. But I mean, like, we've had a lot of enormous wins, including including the House in 2018. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so the the road here, it looks bright, but, you know, uh, this is the beginning, um, not the end of anything, except for, hopefully, uh, Trump's fake dynasty here. Yeah. Well said. Uh, RBG, Notorious RBG, was a fighter, and uh, she was also a workaholic, and I, I think she would be 
um, as much as she wanted to stick around and have uh, the next president appoint uh, her replacement, I think she would be really uh, proud of people rising up uh, with her spirit on their backs. And um, she would also want to carry that workaholic spirit on there, like foot on the gas, don't stop, everybody do everything that, that you can right now in this moment. We've just got a little over a month to go. So in that spirit, let's talk about our calls to action. Um, and we have a few. One thing uh, is yesterday was National Voter Registration Day, and that continues through the week. So I uh, encourage everyone to go to IWillVote.com, check your registration status, learn how to register to vote and what choices you have to cast your ballot, find out where and when you can safely vote, and share that information with all of your friends. That's, that's job number one this week. And then uh, number two, we talked about it at the beginning of the show, phone banking. We are phone banking. We have weekends of action. We have one coming up this weekend. We have Senate phone banks up all week long. Jump into a phone bank. I know it's scary. I know there are conversations that seem uncomfortable. At Swing Left, we have trainings going on of, of to get you comfortable phone banking and give you tips and tricks so that you're having effective conversations. I happen to run most of those trainings at Swing Left, so you get more of me, which is a big bonus. Um, But at least uh, if you're sick of my voice, just come for the uh, beautiful PowerPoint and the empowering uh, information. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, those are are your two. Oh, and and I almost forgot. Check out demandjustice.org. They're really doing a great job leading the way on actions that we can take around the Supreme Court and putting pressure on on the senators to uh, hold off on nominating anyone until after uh, we have a new president. So I said that with such lackluster because it just seems so <laughs> it seems so bleak. Like, but um, you know. Check Things them, are dark. You know, it's okay out. to accept the, the dark, but we, we can be out. try and be bright. You know, it's maybe we can do something. <laughs> maybe we can. Maybe we can. Yeah. You know, I don't know. It, it's no. It's uh, it, it is groups like that, uh, especially demand justice. It's been they've been fighting for a while now. You know, it, it's gonna gonna take all of us to to get through this. And this is not the only thing. And I'm sure, as disgusting this is, this is not the worst. The worst is yet to come. And that's not meant to, for. I mean, just no, think about yeah, it. Yeah. Anything he does that's negative makes things worse. And there's going to be more negative stuff he does. That's us more, more like bracing for it. But at the same time, we can still evoke positivity. We can still have that kind of vibe. And, and that's what we need. And that's how we win. Well said. Yeah, we're we're preparing for what comes on November 4th and and have actions if we need them around that. But right now, everyone's job is to get everyone to vote, to vote early, uh, wherever there's early voting uh, options available. So, Absolutely. Scott Dworkin, thank you so much for joining. This was really fun. I, I would love to um, – let's have a, a debrief after we win all the houses. Yeah, I, I I would love that. I would love all of that. <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be great. Well, we'll uh, you know, it'd be interesting to see where we're at at that point and uh, how this Supreme Court battle has shaped the election because they're gonna try and use that. But we'll we'll see what happens. And again, if we keep fighting, we all vote, we win.
Dr. Abdul El-Sayed is a physician, epidemiologist, public health expert, and progressive activist. In 2018, Abdul ran for governor of Michigan and finished second of three in the Democratic primary. His new book is called Healing Politics, which diagnoses our country's epidemic of insecurity and the empathy politics we need to treat it. And he hosts America Dissected, a great podcast by Crooked Media, which goes beyond the headlines to explore what really matters for our health, what really matters to all of us right now, too. Dr. El-Sayed, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, thank you for having me, Steve. Um, First of all, you're also a Rhodes Scholar, and you served as health commissioner in the city of Detroit. Uh, you could choose a number of different directions to make an impact. What prompted you to run for governor? Well, I, um, you know, I, I dedicated my career to taking on health inequities. And um, I began my career with a focus on medicine, thinking that this was going to be the way to do that. And right. uh, it was as I was training in medical school that I came to appreciate that, frankly, in our country... Uh, the nature of our healthcare system, so focused on profit rather than right. the people who need us every day, um, was actually part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And that led me to a career in public health. I got the opportunity to serve the city of Detroit as health director. And in that role, uh, we were able to take on a number of really important issues, make sure that every child had a free pair of glasses, make sure that uh, mm. children who were being poisoned by the pollutants being put in the air by major corporations had someone fighting for them, taking on those major corporations and forcing them to invest their own money to reduce uh, emissions when they had wanted to increase them. Mm. Or just making sure that um, we were stepping up uh, on issues like lead poisoning, which is a major issue in communities all over the country, but in particular in Detroit. Yeah. Um, and so we were able to, to take on some, some, some really important goals and solve them. But also, you know, every one of these projects usually led to the door of a politician. And those politicians are a lot more focused on uh, what's good for corporations that tend to write those checks to make those decisions rather than what's good for um, kids in communities like Detroit. And ultimately, that's what led me to run for office, um, to run on a set of values that uh, really put those kids first. You ran in uh, the historic year of 2018, which seems like a lifetime ago now and probably mm. even longer for you. But what did you learn from that campaign and running for governor that uh, applies to our elections right now? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, we tend to get so focused on people's pre-existing uh, ideas of um, you know partisan politics and who votes and who doesn't. And I learned a couple things when I ran. The first is that we have to meet people where they are. And we may disagree on a set of things, but it doesn't mean that we cannot find a common set of values and build from there. You know, I think about people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 as a Muslim American, uh, an Arab American, somebody who Trump uh, specifically sought to marginalize right. uh, in his campaign. It would have been easy for me not to reach out to folks uh, whom I uh, knew did not necessarily agree with me on policy. But we went to communities where they were predominantly uh, Republican voters because even though I ran in a primary, I knew that in the long term, uh, the success of 
the project I was running to support, a project where we invest in people's lives and livelihoods, needed to have everyone on board. And by going into communities and having an honest conversation with those communities and standing with and among those communities, it was showing a vote of confidence that I believe that the ideas we were running on mattered for all of us and weren't just partisan ideas. The second is that if we can find our empathy as Americans and Mm -hmm. ask not just what are people saying, but why are they saying it? Um, And what does it say about their pain in this particular moment? I believe that um, we can find solutions that really do call to everybody. And the last thing I'll say is that, um, you know, I think more profoundly right now, we are suffering uh, in this country an epidemic of insecurity. Mm. And what I mean by that is that people are suffering the subjective experience of loss and of fear of loss and worry that their kids are going to have it worse than they had it and that they don't have it as good as their parents have it. And a lot of that is because of the systematic dismantling of a number of institutions that have uh, been a source of the basic means of a dignified life for a lot of folks for a long time, whether it's public education or uh, local healthcare institutions or Mm -hmm. uh, basic infrastructure. And those Institutions are crumbling because we have sold them to the highest bidder, often to the exclusion of folks who that highest bidder doesn't think that they can make money off of. Um, And that has left so many people destitute and worried about the future. And if we can focus on solutions to that epidemic of insecurity, if we can reinvest in those systems, I think that's where the future is. Um, And I know we can do it. I worry that right now, though, we have gotten so caught in a uh, partisan spiral um, that, yeah. uh, that leaves us fighting with people rather than asking why it is that they're so hurt and what we can do about it. I, I love an aspiration uh, for empathy in politics. I, I, your book really lays it out well, and you actually have prescription to... Um, use empathy politics to heal this epidemic of insecurity. Um, But like you said, especially right now when you've got the GOP just cravingly grabbing power after Justice Ginsburg passed away, you know, Mitch McConnell tweeting out that he's going to fill that seat not two hours after the news that she passed. Um, It is difficult. (laughs) It is difficult when um, they have this win at any cost kind of uh, mentality to treat that with empathy. But of course, you're not talking about the politicians, the GOP and Trump and his enablers. You're talking about people who voted for them and having empathy Mm -hmm. towards them, correct? I'm talking about their victims, right? In two ways, right? They're victims who are the people who are most affected by their broken policies and they're victims who have been misinformed by their rhetoric. And, right. um, and I think we have a responsibility to see folks that way, right? Rather than um, seeing them as part of the opposition. I don't think that helps us. Right. I think we have to be asking, you know, if you know there's someone who's lying and lying to the detriment of people that you care about with whom you share space in a country, shouldn't you be asking if they're okay and asking how can I help you? Because you're a victim. And I, I just think that, that that is really important for us to, 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 to recognize. That's what empathy calls us to, is asking, how have you been hurt by this, right? Because 
you may be, you may have been duped by uh, a political scam, but you're still the victim and, and you're hurt because of it. And so how do we come to you and say, hey, look, are you all right? What can we do to really actually invest in making your life a bit better? Yeah, um, my wife really helped me with that because um, she's framed it as, you know, cult members. And I think that that's a very reasonable way to frame it. You know, um, these are people who have been fed lies, fed misinformation to their own detriment. And, um, you know, how would you approach a cult member who you, you want to pull out of a cult? You know, you, you wouldn't do it with vitriol and hatred. You would do it with empathy and, uh, and understanding and trying to help them. So it's not easy every day, though. <laughs> it's not easy every day. It's not. I, you know, the, the, the only thing I'll say about that, and I really appreciate uh, your, your wife's perspective on it, is that the human condition um, is uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard one. And, you know, people, people are struggling every single day and people want answers for why they're struggling. And the thing about demagogues is that they always come off as really confident, um, mm -hmm. that this is the reason why, even if their arguments strain credulity, there's a confidence there that people are reassured by. And I think as we push against the confidence of those who are ultimately con men, um, I think it's really important to be there with folks as they deal with the real struggles that they are, 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 are experiencing in their lives. And so it's really hard sometimes to, 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 to be empathic with folks who you see consistently making um, bad judgments um, and yeah. that it's hurting them. Uh, but I just think that there's a sort of step back and say, to say, look, you know, all of us are sort of in this thing together and all of us know the experience of fear and of pain. And, um, you know, it behooves us to, to bring that to these conversations, even when it's the hardest. And I really appreciate your wife's, uh, you know, your her call to empathy in that. Yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, since we have an epidemiologist on the show, I, I want to talk a little bit about the coronavirus with you too, if you don't mind. Um, mm -hmm. There was a New York Times article on Monday, uh, with the headline "In Power Grab Health Secretary Azar Asserts Authority Over the FDA," experts said the memo would make it more difficult for the FDA to issue new rules, but it's unclear how it would affect the vetting of coronavirus vaccines. So we've mm -hmm. seen mask wearing and social distancing politicized, and now there are serious concerns about a vaccine being rushed through, raising concerns and questions about its efficacy and safety, where ideally there should just be simple scientific consensus guiding us. So as an epidemiologist and health official, how can we keep science and the truth as untarnished by politics as possible? It, it, it obviously concerns all of us. It really concerns me. Yeah, it really is so much harder when you have a president and an administration who aren't operating in good faith. You know, for them, the only thing they care about is what information coming out means for their political narrative in an election year, rather than what it means for our well-being in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And the the good thing about science, though, is that it is a language. And, you know, you could tell me that somebody's speaking... Uh, Swahili, and I don't speak Swahili. So, you know, I, I would need you as a Swahili speaker, or if you spoke Swahili, to tell me that, in fact, they're speaking, and this is what they're saying. The beautiful right. thing about science, though, is that you can't BS the language. Either they're speaking scientific truth, 
and it vaccines are safe and efficacious. But Trump thinks not. that he can't. Trump thinks he can, you know, bullshit Swahili. He thinks he can speak Swahili. That's right. That's right. But we, as a scientific community, have to demand transparency around the studies, and that's going to be the most critical thing, right? Because if yeah. the community of science scientists looks at these study outcomes and says, yes, this vaccine is safe and effective, um, then you can trust it. But if the community of scientists looks at this and says, A, we don't have enough information, or B, what this information is telling us is in fact these, or this vaccine is not safe and effective, then we can't. And so I think we have to be demanding full transparency around this information. Um, and that to me is the place where I, I still have uh, a bit of hope, but it is really scary. I mean, the CDC uh, every day has some snafu or another where some Trump official, uh, you know, forced them to put some piece of information on their website or take it off right. because it doesn't comport with Trump's worldview. And that's a really scary thing when you think about, you know, organizations and institutions like the CDC and the FDA that have kept Americans safe for a very long time now being trumped because of the will of and the political uh, experiency of, of one leader. Um, and, and so all of us have to be high, on high alert. And that's why I think it's, it's more important than ever that the community of scientists is consistent and that we demand transparency, you know, from the corporations that are doing these studies and telling us that their products are safe and effective. Yeah. What does a vaccine timeline really look like for you? Well, you know, there's a difference between a vaccine and a vaccination, right? The vaccine is the theoretical existence of a molecule that can um, induce a uh, immune response to protect against a coronavirus infection. But a vaccination is what happens when you put a vaccine in someone's arm. And there's a lot of steps between a vaccine and a vaccination. And so what I'm interested in is at what point can we get to a vaccination scale where we have the second order population level uh, protection of herd immunity, right? Herd immunity being the immunity that you get because other people around you are immune. And um, that's going to take us getting to 70 to some folks say 90% uh, immunization. So, you know, that timeline is going to be a lot longer than a couple of months. And so, you know, the, the advent, theoretical advent of vaccine to me is just not as important as when we can get vaccinations done at scale because we figured out the, not just the, the vaccine, but the logistics of deploying a uh, vaccine uh, out into the community. So I'm looking at, you know, mid-2021 uh, at the earliest where mm -hmm. you actually start getting, you know, vaccinations at scale, but it's likely to be a bit longer than that. And the frustrating thing about this is that every day that Donald Trump spends his time politicizing this vaccine, he's reducing our ability to turn a vaccine into a vaccination because people don't trust a process that is politicized. And so, you know, the best thing he can do is shut up and, um, uh, and yeah. let the public health people and the scientists uh, do their work. I'll pass that along to him. Hopefully, uh, yeah, hopefully he'll do that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, this is something that none of us could uh, have ever imagined would be a political issue, you know, global pandemic. And we already have people who question vaccines and um, it's, it is concerning. We need to have a unified front. So we'll look to science and we'll look for transparency in those, uh, in those trials you have a great podcast, American Dissected, which is a great source of information about the coronavirus and also how it affects our daily lives. 
This is a really big question, but you talked about, you know, mid 21 at the earliest being able to at scale, get the vaccination out to people. In the meantime, how do you see us adapting to this new reality we're living in? Do you think schools will be able to open up uh, businesses just be changed forever? Or, you know, how long will it be until we cram back into tight spaces together? Mm -hmm. I think um, once we start getting uh, immunity rates up um, because of a vaccine that's been deployed and turned into vaccinations, you know, that's when we can start really imagining life as it was, you know, and getting back to the things that make us human. But the other part of this is that it didn't have to be that way. Right. There was a world where we did the basic public health blocking and tackling so that we could bring down COVID-19 transmission rates and reduce uh, the risk of this vaccine to a point where people could actually live their lives in a normal way. Um, But we didn't do that. And because we didn't do that, the opportunity to do that gets harder and harder every day. You know, the, the more widespread this virus uh, became the harder and harder it was to contain it. And so, right. you know, I, 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 it's almost, I don't, I hate to say that I've given up on our, our ability to do the basic things like testing and contact tracing uh, and, you know, mask regulations at scale. But there's very little that's shown me that under this leadership that we're going to be able to get there. Perhaps, God willing, we have a change in leadership in November. Um, mm-hmm. And under a Biden administration, there is a real concerted investment in public health blocking and tackling, hopefully we'll get there faster. But right now, right, it really is the vaccine that, that you know, that people are trusting because our public health system under this leadership um, has, you know, in a lot of ways fallen flat. And uh, it is because our system is intended to be run from the top down uh, and the top has been missing in action. Yeah, I know a Biden administration uh, would have, a you know, to say a better response is, um, you know, putting it mildly, but... I do worry about the, you know, the cult of Trump voters who aren't going to adhere to any policy changes that the Biden administration puts out. So I'm kind of with you. I, I, uh, you know, I like to call myself an optimist, but it's hard to see that um, that we can get back to what we knew as normal before. Um, And uh, so, well, well, that's a good segue into just my last question that I'll ask you that, you know, there's as we've articulated a lot of uncertainty about both health and politics right now. We know Trump and the GOP are holding on to power with all of they've all they've got. Citizens are rising up to demand racial justice and fight for fair and equitable society. We're all working to make sure that as many voters as possible are able to vote safely and have their vote counted despite Trump and the GOP's efforts not to do that. You have a unique perspective in both health and politics. So I'm going to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests to end with. What gives you the most hope for our future? Hmm. Young people. I, um, hmm. you know, I, the, one of the youngest of people I get to hang out with every day, and that's my, my little girl, Emily. Uh, Emily translates into my hope in Arabic. And um, she is, How old is uh, she? two and a half. She's two and a half years old. And, okay. um, you know, the humanity that I think is so essential in children ought to inspire all of us, right? I, I remember we were walking uh, just a couple of days ago and we saw this beautiful purple flower that was growing on the side of the road. And, hmm. you know, all of us can appreciate a beautiful flower, but the joy 
the existential joy that it brought to her face, I mean, that's the kind of human emotion that moves mountains. And um, I believe deeply in these young folks who are coming up and are clear-eyed about the reality in which they've grown up. A reality where our country's been mired in international wars we should not have been fighting, where they watch their parents struggle with the potential to lose their homes and their jobs in a great recession and are now being forced to go to school behind a computer screen from their own homes right. uh, or on a campus that you know opened up uh, before it was safe to recoup some of the potential lost tuition money that they were so worried about and put their students at risk, right? They, they are, they are clear-eyed about the challenges we face. And so, you know, I know that the future that we need to build in this country, that those young folks will build. And our job, I think, is to empower them with the building blocks and the opportunities to do that. And so, you know, young folks are my hope. They are my optimism. And they remind me every day uh, what we're fighting for, uh, you know, in America where every kid can look at their future and say, you know what? I can be and do whatever I put my mind to. We're not there yet. We haven't ever been there. But I believe that we're, mm. uh, we can get there if we are willing to invest in them and we are willing to be inspired by them. I love that. That's, I feel exactly the same way. Um, and we all need to invest in them and let them lead. It's not just a song, but it's, uh, they really are going to save us all. And in the meantime, we also have the most important election of our lives. So let's all show up and, and, uh, and create the kind of blue tsunami that's just a clear repudiation of what is happening in our government right now with Trump and the GOP. Absolutely. Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us today and for stepping up to take action. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved and volunteer. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Share us on social media. Use the hashtag HowWeWin2020. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course, sign up for those phone banking shifts right now. Just do it. We really appreciate you being here with us, and we'll be back with some more next Wednesday. 